We are continuing on our series where we are going through some of the stories of the kings that stretch in the line of David between David and Jesus. And so uh, we've just been going through these stories over the last uh, several weeks. And our goal here is as we're digging through these stories is to see what the Lord would take from these stories and speak to us. And so that's what we've been doing as part of this King series. And so I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and grab your Bibles. Uh, as a reminder, uh, during this series, I am going to just mention we don't have the scriptures up on the screen. And I know for some of you, that's a struggle. You might have to bring your reading glasses and then put them on and take them off and in between. While, uh, so so I, I thank you for coming along with us. But it is so important at times, and this is my preference, but I don't do it all the time. It is so important that we have the scriptures in front of us and that we're reading along uh, together. And as part of these stories, I think it's appropriate. So if you would, grab your Bibles this morning. And if you did not bring a Bible this morning, don't sweat it. There are some that are spread out all around you. Just reach over and grab one of those as you grab it. Once you grab it, if you would open it up to 2 Chronicles. Uh, let's start in 2 Chronicles chapter 18. We began this series talking about Asa, who was the great-great-grandson of David. And then last week we talked about Jehoshaphat, who was his son. And today we're going to pick up the story right at Jehoshaphat's death. Okay, but before we do that, I need to set it up with a scripture I read last week. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 1. There it says, Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. Okay, so Jehoshaphat was one of the great kings of Judah, the, the, the tribes in the south that remained loyal to David's line. Um, he was one of the great, in fact, one of the top three. We talked about that last week. Ahab, on the other hand, the king of Israel, the ten tribes in the north that split off from David, was one of the worst kings. It says that in scripture that he, was, he actually did more evil than all of the kings before him, which is really kind of saying something because those kings before him were not the best of characters. So he was the worst of the worst. Jehoshaphat is one of the best. And chapter 18, verse 1, just slips by us, and we don't often pay attention to it. It says, now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he made a marriage alliance. He made an alliance, he made a covenant, and he sealed it in marriage between his son and the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And, and it goes by quickly, and often we don't catch what happens but I promise you, everything that, that we read about today is a direct result of this one verse. Jehoshaphat doesn't even see it during his lifetime. But after he dies, in fact, right after he dies, it starts showing up. So let's skip to there. Second Chronicles chapter 21, it says, verse 1, Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. He had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehael, Zechariah, Azariah. He named two of his sons Azariah, not the most creative king. Azariah, Michael, Shephatiah, Azariah, Azariah, and Azariah. All these were, Daryl, Daryl, anyways, okay, all right. All these were the sons of Jehoshaphat. Kings of Israel, their, fathers, their father gave them great gifts of silver, gold, and valuable possessions, together with fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. 
okay? So this was pretty typical in that southern kingdom, okay? The king would hand off the kingdom to one son in particular, but then the other sons he would set up with, with, with finances, and then he would put them in place, I guess you could call them as the mayors or the governors of city, really city-states around Judah, and so they would be responsible for the fortification of that city. They would also then, as a result, be responsible for the fortification of Judah. This is a good setup, and this is the way things ran in the southern kingdom. It's not the way things ran in the northern kingdom. So here's what Jehoram does once his father dies. Verse 4, when Jehoram had ascended the throne of his father and was established, he killed all his brothers with the sword and also some of the princes of Israel. And when it says princes of Israel, this is specifically talking about like the leaders in Israel. So he's killing off anybody who might be a threat to his reign. This is not the way things were done in Judah. For the 150 years before, this had not happened. In Judah, you did not solidify your reign by murdering your brothers. That is how it was done in the northern tribes. One after another, coups and bloodletting. That was like common course of action. It was the MO of the northern tribes, but not Judah. And the reason why he does this, Jehoram does this, verse 5, Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. He only made it eight years, and those were not good years. He was invaded. The, the, as when he was invaded, all of his sons except one is killed, are killed, and then on top of that, he ends up dying from like a, it says a bowel disease. I mean, it's just not a pretty thing. Eight years he makes it. This is a dark time in Judah. It begins a dark time. Verse 6, here's the reason why. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So it blames the fact that he does this on his wife. Which is typically right. Um, but in this instance, I'm sorry. That was not good, not good. Okay. In this instance, it is the way it goes. Because Jehoram becomes king, and I guarantee you, his wife says to him, you better get rid of your brothers. And so Jehoram does. And it begins this really dark time, as a res partly as a result of her. So he makes it eight years, and when he dies, it actually says that nobody mourned him. It says uh, in verse, uh, in that same Second Chronicles chapter uh, 21, it says, uh, and he was 32 years old when he began, he departed to no one's regret. Oof. Ouch, that hurts. Chapter 22, then his son takes over. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his place. For the band of men that came with the Arabians to the camp had killed all the other sons. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, reigned. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned one year in Jerusalem. He makes it one year. His mother's name was Athaliah. Now we know her name. Her, his mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor in doing wickedly. So not only does she corrupt Jehoram, then when his, when his son becomes king, he only makes it a year before he's killed. You can read the story sometime. She actually corrupts him. She's his counselor. So she's the power behind the throne, Athaliah. 
And then when Ahaziah dies, one year into his reign, all hell breaks loose in 842 B.C. in Judah. Verse 10. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, and this begins our story for today. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and she destroyed all the royal family of the house of Judah. This begins the story of the coup and the covenant. The coup we see right here. The covenant is back in chapter 21. Verse 7, after Jehoram had begun to reign, it says that even still in spite of this evil time, in spite of all that, verse 7 says, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. So that's the covenant. Here we have the coup. Verse 10 of chapter 22. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and she destroyed all the royal family of the house of Judah. The word for destroyed there is a really unique word. It's kind of a rare word. It actually means not to kill. It means to exterminate. So she sets off to exterminate those who are of the line of David, which means not just uh, the grandsons, which she does kill. You see that in the next verse. But that means probably uncles. That means uh, Jehoshaphat, if he had any brothers left. Like, she's just going through the country and looking for anybody who has any claim to the throne. Why? Because she wants to be. Why, why be the power behind the throne when you can be on the throne? So Athaliah becomes the black widow of Israel or of Judah, and she takes control by, by wiping out the descendants of David. Verse 11. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were about to be put to death. So she's putting to death her own grandsons. It's like evil grandma. She steals him away from among the king's sons who were about to be put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. So he's young enough that he still has a nurse, probably under one year old, based on the time frame. That means that he was small enough that he got missed in the purge. Jehoshaphat comes along, takes this young boy, Joash, away. Wait, but it says that she is, the next verse says, Thus Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Jehoram, and a wife of Jehoiada the priest, because she was a sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she did not put him to death. So Jehoshaphat then is either Athaliah's daughter or more likely a stepdaughter. Which means that Athaliah would be like the wicked stepmom. This is a good story, right? I mean, it's super dark, right? And this isn't a pretty time at all, but, but totally understanding that, man, this is just like full of all kinds of like twists and turns. So her own stepdaughter steals her grandson before she can kill him and takes him away. And it says... She puts him in a bedroom. Verse 12 gives us more information. And he remained with them six years, hidden in the house of God, 
while Athaliah reigned over the land. So he was hidden. The word that's translated in the ESV, bedroom, it's actually two separate words. It doesn't actually mean bedroom. It means an inner room with a bed. And the reason why that's important is because if he had meant a bedroom, he could have just written a bedroom. But he very specifically said an inner room with, there's a different word that means bedroom. He says an inner room with a bed. Here's why that's important. I'm going to ask you to throw the iPad up on the screen real fast. We know exactly what the temple of, of Solomon looked like. Okay. We know just what it looked like. We have in 1 Kings chapter uh, 6 through chapter 8, we have a beautiful picture, and it walks us through what it was made out of and how big it is and all of those things. So there's the, the actual temple. I'm going to zoom over and actually show you the floor, uh, the, the footprint of the actual temple. So in this, there's this solid wall here, and this is what you would call the nave, and then here, of course, you have the, the most holy place right here, okay? So this is solid. And we know that after they build the temple, that around the outside of the temple, they build storerooms, okay? So this is not like the gold-gilded part of the temple. This is on the outside of it. They had to put some stuff someplace, so they build some storerooms, okay? So when it actually says the house of God here, this is what we're looking at, and this is that inner part, Right? It goes like that. And then around the outside of it, there's these storerooms that go all the way around the temple. Now, according to the description, there's one entrance right here. You know how big this was? The bottom floor, seven and a half foot wide. The second floor, because there were stairs that went up to the second floor. The second floor, nine feet wide. Top floor, ten and a half feet wide. So what we're talking about is that this young boy, Joash, was not put in like a gold-gilded bedroom. He was stuck in the closet with a bed. And, and you, we know exactly how big the little windows were on here. They're not very big. There's not a lot of light that gets in there. He's in there in a storeroom, and they have these little walls, and you can go, and who knows exactly where he is in there, but that's the only place he could have been because we have a description of what the house of God was like, and he wasn't in here, and he most definitely wasn't in there. So he's only got one place. He was in the closet. Now, it's a good place to hide him because the one place that Athali is not going to look the temple. It's like putting the Twinkies in the vegetable drawer. You're probably going to be safe. She's not coming to the temple anytime soon. But what's really interesting, just as a side, um, what's interesting is that there are uh, uh, archaeologists that have actually said that this is probably the layout of it, that when you talk about Solomon's palace, which is also in 1 Kings, that it wasn't very far from the temple. It was actually probably on Mount Moriah. So here's the temple. You know where Athalia was? We're talking about like 100 yards away. And if he was on the inner room, maybe he was all the way on the back side of it, but he was not very far away at all from the queen. Probably 100 yards away. And you wonder if for six years, you can flip it back over, if for six years he was hiding in this closet, if for six years Athalia was on the throne, what must that have been like for Jehoiada and Jehoshabeth. 
every single day wondering, is this the day that the rumor gets out? Is this the day when it all goes bad and Nathalia hears there's some boy being raised in the temple? You wonder, did, did Joash stay there at night when Jehoiada and, and Jehoshabeth went home? Was he just there with his nurse the entire time? Six years from age one to age seven, he's hiding in this little temple area. You wonder, during this dark, dark time, what must have been going through all of their minds. In the seventh year, things change. Chapter 23. But in the seventh year, Jehoiada, the priest, took courage and entered into a covenant with the commanders of hundreds, Azariah, the son of Jeroham, Ishmael, the son of Jehohanan, Azariah, the son of Obed, apparently it was a popular name, Maaseah, the son of Adiah, Elishaphat, the son of Zikri. So he gets together these leaders of the military, and what does he do? He enters into a covenant with them. Now, we don't know if he tells them, like, what's about to happen. We don't know if he tells them, listen, I've got the king's son at the temple. We don't know any of that. All we know is that he swears them to secrecy, and then he sends them off to do something. Here begins the second coup. Verse 2. And they went about through Judah and gathered the Levites from the cities of Judah and the heads of fathers' houses of Israel. And they came to Jerusalem. Okay, so this is all happening right under the nose of Athaliah. So you wonder as they come in, are they like pulling their hoods up, acting like they're just pilgrims on the way to the temple? But these leaders from the nation begin to gather in the temple. And all the assembly made a covenant with the king in the house of God. A second covenant. We don't know what this covenant is, but probably it's something along the lines of, you're our king. They make a covenant with him. So this is the third covenant we've talked about today. And Jehoiada said to them, behold the king's son. Let him reign as the Lord spoke concerning the sons of David. Now that's a little anticlimactic, I would think. They take a covenant, and then he says, behold the king's son. Why not behold the king? Right? It just said they took a covenant with the king. But anybody can claim to be king. Athaliah claimed to be a queen. There's only one who can claim to be the king's son. So they take a covenant with him, and he says, Behold the king's son. <clears throat> this is the thing that you shall do, he says. Verse 4. Of you priests and Levites who come off duty on the Sabbath, one-third shall be gatekeepers. One-third shall be at the king's house. And one-third at the gate of the foundation. And all the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord. Let no one enter the house of the Lord except the priests and ministering Levites. They may enter, for they are holy. But all the people shall keep the charge of the Lord. The Levites shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand, and whoever enters the house shall be put to death. Be with the king when he comes in and when he goes out. So he sets this up and he puts people around. Verse 8, 
The Levites and all Judah did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath. For Jehoiada the priest did not dismiss the division. So, so he keeps those who are supposed to be going off duty and he's got these influx of those who are supposed to be. So he doubles immediately the amount of guards he's got. Very smart, this Jehoiada. And Jehoiada the priest gave to the captains the spears and the large and small shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of God. And he set all the people as a guard for the king, every man with his weapon in his hand. From the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar in the house. Then they brought out the king's son, and they put the crown on him, and they gave him the testimony And they proclaimed him king, Jehoiada, and his sons anointed him. And they said, long live the king. So here he is, seven-year-old Joash. And they put a crown on his head. It says they anoint him with oil. And he is holding in his hand, what does it say? The testimony. We don't know what the testimony is. But it's a piece of paper that essentially calls or reminds them of some covenant. Now, it might be the covenant they just took. It might be the covenant that God made with, with uh, his great, 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 great grandfather David. It might be the covenant that's back in Abraham. Like, we don't know what covenant he's holding in his hand. But in spite of the crown and in spite of the anointing, the only one that really matters is the fact that he is holding on to the covenant. That he has in his hand a testimony of the covenant. So he's got a crown, he's got the anointing, and he's got the covenant. And then Athaliah hears about it. Verse 12. When Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, she went into the house of the Lord to the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing by his pillar at the entrance, and the captains and the trumpeters beside the king. And all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets, and the singers with their musical instruments leading in the celebration. And Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, treason, treason. Really? A little late for that, don't you think, Athaliah? But then Jehoiada the priest brought out the captains who were set over the army, saying to them, bring her out between the ranks, and anyone who follows her is to be put to death with the sword. For the priest said, do not put her to death in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her, and she went into the entrance of the horse gate of the king's house, and they put her to death there. Verse 16. And Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king that they should be the Lord's people. What a beautiful story. Dark story. You, you can imagine the darkness of this time. But in the midst of this story, you have five covenants and two coups. Okay? One of the covenants brings Athaliah into the family. Takes two covenants to usurp her. There's a fourth covenant after it's all said and done where the king and the priest and the people say, we are going to be the people of God. But with all those covenants, there's really only one That made a real difference here. And that was the covenant that God made to David 150 years before. Back to 2 Chronicles, chapter 21, verse 7. Yet the Lord 
was not willing to destroy the house of David. Why? Because of the covenant that he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Man, can you imagine what it must have been like during those six years? I wonder, like, at what point he asked, can I go outside and play? And he was told no. I wonder why, what they told him. Like, at what point did they tell him he was the king? Like, did they tell him at the beginning, or did they wait until right before they reveal? I mean, like, at what point did they let him know that this is different because of the fact that you are a descendant of David? I wonder if he was back in one of those closets, and this is the way I picture it happening. Is Joash there one day, maybe however it began, Jehoiada and Jehoshabeth sitting there saying, let me tell you a story. And maybe they look over in the corner and they see that lamp burning. Maybe it's getting low on oil or the wick is about to go out or maybe it just begins to flicker. And maybe Jehoiada and Jehoshabeth say to Joash, see that lamp in the corner? Let me tell you a story about a good king. Let me tell you a story about the fact that he was after God's own heart. And as a result, God himself made a covenant that for all time a descendant of his would be on the throne. Now let me tell you, this queen, she's not a descendant of David. Let me tell you that God promised that there would always be a lamp burning in Jerusalem. And let me tell you, you see that flame right there, Joash? You are that flame. And man, it might seem like it's flickering a little bit right now, but it's still burning. See, because God made a promise to David. And let me tell you, he doesn't break those. When he says he's going to do something, he does it. And let me tell you, the line of David might be seeming a little thin. It might be seeming like it's hanging by a thread. But God made a covenant. And there will always be a lamp burning in Jerusalem. You ever think about the reason why God would use a lamp as the illustration? I mean, if he wants to talk about the line of David being solid, if he wants to talk about the fact that it will always be the case all the way to Jesus, why not say, I set a stone in Jerusalem and there will always be a king that is from the line of David? Right? That's more firm than a lamp. I mean, Jesus used the lamp to talk about the fact that you got to constantly make sure that it's full of oil. What about when the wick starts running down? you got to go and replace that wick. That's like, seems like it's the kind of thing you got to constantly care for. Why would you use that to show that the line of David will always be secure? It's not the kind of thing you set and forget. 
Neither are God's promises. God keeps his promises, but he also attends to them. He doesn't set his promises and forget them. He comes back, and he checks and makes sure that the oil is full and the wick is long so that it will keep on burning. He keeps his promises, and he cares for his promises. That's why it says in Psalm 89, speaking about the line of David, verse 28, My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of heaven. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove. I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. Will not be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. And that's what we find in Chronicles, you see this picture of God looking out to and fro across the whole earth, seeking those whose heart is truly is. But the writer of Chronicles also wants us to know that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. He will not be false to his faithfulness. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So what are his promises to us? Well, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says that he has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. In Matthew chapter 6 verse 33 in Philippians 4:19 he tells us that he will meet every single one of our needs. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, he says to us that in every single trial and tribulation that he will be with us to comfort us. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says that he will give us power from on high. In Romans 8, 28, he says that no matter what happens in our lives, that he will take that and turn it for good. Regardless of what it might be, he will give reason to everything that happens. Matthew chapter 18, he says that we will have rest. And in John chapter 14, he says that he will return. He promises us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And I don't know whatever other promises 
he has made to you. But I do know that there are times when we seem like we're sitting in a dark room and we look over in the corner and it seems like the flame is flickering a little bit. We ask the question, are your promises still yes and amen in Christ Jesus? And let me tell you, the room may be dark and you might look over at that little flame flickering, but I'll tell you that if the flame is flickering, the fire is still burning. God does not break his promises, and when he makes a covenant with us, he keeps it. My favorite part of this story is Jehoshabeth. This woman who stands up to the queen who may be her own mother, we don't even know. What I love about it is what her name means. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh vows, which means before Joash ever came along, God had prepared a woman to keep his vow. Years before Athaliah came on the scene, this woman was prepared. Why? Because God doesn't just keep his promises, he cares for his promises. He doesn't set them and forget them. He comes back and he makes sure the oil's there and the wick is long and the fire will keep burning. So whatever promise he has made to you today, I know the ones that are in scripture, but whatever promises he has made to you today, he has not forgotten, he has not forsaken. He knows right where you are And that promise is as real today as it was the day he gave it to you. So be encouraged. Because Yahweh vows. He keeps his promises. Father, right now I just pray for every heart in this room. Pray for every person who's struggling with some question. 